EU Confidential will get started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by SQM. At SQM, we use scientist-led close digital monitoring of the local environment and collaboration with global sustainability experts to keep our lithium extraction processes green. The Hungarian bill is a shame. I've instructed my responsible commissioners to write a letter to the Hungarian authorities concerning or expressing our legal concerns before the bill enters into force. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen talking about a new bill in Hungary that would make it illegal to portray and promote homosexuality and gender change to minors under the age of 18. It's a measure that's provoked outrage across much of Europe, and we'll get into that and how the debate over LGBTQ rights has even spilled into European football in just a moment with our podcast panel. And later in this episode, the European Commission's Vice President for Interinstitutional Relations and Foresight, Maris Shevchevich, is our special guest. He discusses his role in enforcing the UK withdrawal agreement and the nickname he's come to embrace as part of those negotiations. How do you find personally this sausage king moniker? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I was, uh, I mean, a bit, uh, a bit amused, and I think it just underlined the fact how the UK said was happy about that uh, solution, and uh, so I mean, it's uh, Michael's uh, sense of uh, sense of humor. And therefore, as a sausage king, I definitely do not want the sausage war, if I can say it this way. But <laughs> so I'm ready to do everything. Be sure to stay tuned later in the podcast for that conversation with Politico's Josh Posaner. But first, let's talk Hungary, French politics, Brexit and more with our podcast panel. So welcome to Remontaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. Uh, Lily Beyer, our Brussels politics reporter in our Brussels office. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. And in the UK, it's our old friend Annabelle Dixon. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. How are you doing? Very good. It's nice to be back. Yeah, great to have you. Um, we've got uh, a variety of topics to tackle. Um, let's start with one that's really made headlines across uh, Europe for a couple of reasons. And that is the anti-LGBTQ plus legislation uh, that has been passed by the Hungarian parliament. That has sparked a lot of protests across Europe, and it's also got tied up with the Euro 2020 uh, football tournament, of course, because the city of Munich proposed lighting up the stadium for the Germany-Hungary match in rainbow colours in response to the Hungarian measure, and UEFA said they couldn't, which in turn uh, prompted a backlash against UEFA. Uh, Lily, you are our Hungary expert, and you were also at a meeting of EU ministers where this topic was very much under discussion this week. So maybe just start by filling us in on what the Hungarian legislation actually says, uh, you know, what the measure means in practice. So the amendments that were approved by the Hungarian parliament basically ban the portrayal or the promotion of homosexuality, sex change, or divergence from self-identity corresponding to sex at birth to minors. Uh, now, that may sound very strange, 
And it's still very unclear how this law would be interpreted. But in effect, critics fear that this law means, for example, that minors may no longer be allowed to watch TV shows with gay characters. So this has caused um, a huge outrage uh, within Hungary, uh, within the LGBT community um, in Hungary, but also across Europe. And I should say that if Viktor Orban was listening to this podcast, and I hope he is, uh, he would actually be very happy that we're discussing this issue because it appears that he really wants to spark a culture war using these amendments. Right. I mean, and, and this is the challenge in some ways in uh, that, and this is, I, I guess, an issue with culture war topics generally, right, where if you don't discuss them, then in some ways you're neglecting to discuss an important issue. But if you do, you may be playing into the hands of people who deliberately want to draw attention to them for their for their own purposes. So we will try and, and kind of strike the right balance here. But Lily, let's stick with you for a moment because you were in Luxembourg this week where this came up as part of a broader discussion about, you know, democratic standards, the rule of law in Hungary, that ongoing debate. How did that play out in Luxembourg? Obviously, the meeting was behind closed doors, but I know you spoke to many people who know what happened behind those closed doors. That's right. So in Luxembourg, it was really striking because, of course, ministers have had many discussions over the years about the state of the rule of law in Hungary. But I think few people remember a discussion where ministers appear to have become so upset um, and frustrated. And it appears that for some ministers, this particular legislation was just a step too far. And the discussion got incredibly heated. Hungary's justice minister, Judith Varga, was in the room. Uh, we hear that she was incredibly combative in her discussions with her fellow ministers. Some of the ministers, particularly from Western Europe, were incredibly critical and very worried about this law. And what came out of this session was uh, later a statement from a group of 13 countries condemning the Hungarian legislation. And this was really striking because at first we only had 13 signatories, notably including the Baltic states, who don't always speak up on rule of law issues. So it was already quite interesting to see their names on there. And then what we saw in the hours that followed is that more and more countries like Italy and Greece started adding their names to this statement. What happened, I think, was that there was suddenly a lot of political pressure coming, I think, in part from the uh, wide media attention across the block, including from outlets that don't normally cover things like a rule of law hearing about Hungary. And a lot of countries just felt too embarrassed not to be joining the, the chorus of voices condemning this law. Mm. Reem, how has it, um, how much impact, how much coverage is it, is it getting in, in France? Obviously, one of the ministers at that uh, meeting that Lily covered was Clément Bonne, the uh, French EU affairs minister who has been quite outspoken on these issues in, in the past. How big is it playing in France? How much of a concern is it in France? It's actually getting a lot of play in France. It's really interesting. It's one of these uh, rare European issues that uh, does pierce through. And as you said, it's been a main issue for Bowen since he became a junior minister for European affairs. You'll remember when he went to Poland a few months ago uh, and he tried to go to these sort of LGBT free zones and it became sort of the situation, this diplomatic situation 
And of course, France was one of 14 countries that signed this letter basically calling for the European Union to take economic sanctions against Hungary. And what I did understand today, uh, sort of ahead of the U European Council summit that is happening Thursday and Friday. So if our listeners are listening on the weekend, uh, it will have happened. Some heads of state definitely intend on raising this issue so directly with Orban in the room. Mm. And Lily, we should just for the sake of balance and fairness, you did speak also to Judith Varga, I believe the justice minister, Hungarian justice minister. You know, what is the Hungarian government's defense uh, for this measure? So the Hungarian government is arguing that this is about protecting children and that it's about parents' rights. So the Hungarian government actually following all of this criticism put out a statement today calling the European Commission president's statement criticizing the bill shameful and repeating that this is about protecting the rights of children and guaranteeing the rights of parents. So Orban is sticking with this for the time being. Well, this is a topic that is going to run, I think, at least for a few days. As, as Reem said, I think that, you know, will obviously be an issue at the European Council uh, summit. So I would advise our listeners as ever to keep an eye on politico.eu for coverage of that. Let's uh, switch topics now, uh, Reem, and focus on France. Um, we had a round of uh, regional and local elections in France last weekend. We have a second round coming up. What are the key kind of takeaways for you from, from those elections? There's a few takeaways. Let's start with the record low turnout. We're talking about the lowest turnout in an election in France. It's an abstention that is not an abstention of anger. It's an abstention of indifference. And that actually might be worse than anger in the sense that there's so much political apathy and people are feeling so alienated from the political class. They feel like politicians don't understand their concerns, don't represent their concerns, don't actually deliver on their promises, that they're just like, you know what, this whole election thing just doesn't, is useless. There's also another issue, which is that Emmanuel Macron's party has been completely routed in this election. Actually, a list in the north of France that has five cabinet ministers, including two of their highest, of the highest profile ministers, the interior minister and the justice minister, barely got 10%. They were at 9% of the vote. Imagine that with a turnout of 30%. So it's just a dismal showing. And it shows that Emmanuel Macron may have been able to, you know, completely blow up the political system in the mainstream parties in France, but he hasn't been able to build an alternative. And finally, I think it was very interesting because during this regional election and during this campaign, Emmanuel Macron's party and camp kept basically using this mannequin choice between either the far right winning a lot of seats that are that in an unprecedented way or people voting for his camp as a way to turn out the vote. And that doesn't seem to have mobilized anyone. It seems to have been met with like a collective shrug. And so if that sort of the specter of the far right winning no longer mobilizes people, then it's going to be very interesting to see how they behave during the presidential election in April 2022. Right. And it's interesting that the far right didn't do particularly well either, right? Not not as well as a lot of people had expected. Um, let's switch to the UK now. Um, Annabelle, I believe it's a Brexit anniversary. It's the anniversary of the referendum. 
And I'm actually going to have to ask you to tell me how many years it is, because one of these things that seems to have been going on forever. And, and I remember hearing the, the, you know, how many years it was this morning, and I couldn't decide whether it felt longer or shorter than that. So tell us and tell us, you know, what you think the continuing impact is, because that one thing is for sure, this story is not over, right? No, absolutely. So it's five years Five years today, I was um, recovering from sitting in a sports hall in Chelmsford, watching the pound plummet um, <laughs> at about two in the morning and wondering what it all meant. But uh, interestingly, I think it's the story is still Northern Ireland. You know, it remains in the eye of the Brexit storm. Brussels and London are at loggerheads. And it's the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is is the main point of contention um, it turns out this tricky compromise on trading arrangements, which places the, the region in both the UK and the EU internal markets, is actually a bureaucratic nightmare. Who would have thought it? So effectively, you know, the UK thinks the EU are being too legalistic and they think, you know, there's more room for manoeuvre on customs checks and rules. While the EU are saying, look, there are agreements that could be signed, such as a veterinary agreement to smooth things. But, you know, the UK isn't keen to do that because Brexit was about being able to move away from alignment on EU standards. So, you know, th this is the argument that we were having five years ago. <laughs> what I'm very interested, actually, from, from you guys in other capitals is whether your capitals have moved on. I think in Westminster, Boris Johnson wants to move on. Certainly our former colleague Tom McTague did a big interview with him. And he was like, do we have to talk about Brexit? We've sucked that lemon dry. So he certainly doesn't want to talk about Brexit. Labour doesn't want to talk about Brexit. But we are all still talking about Brexit. Lily, what do you do you hear Brexit coming up much in conversations in Brussels? Well, every time I interview Irish officials, for sure it comes up. And it's the, the most prominent thing on their minds. But when I talk to officials from other member states... I think these days it's actually pretty rare for Brexit to come up randomly in conversation unless we're talking, you know, about something very, very specific, um, having to do with conversations ongoing with the UK. Mm. Reem? Brexit is constantly discussed by the French, even though they constantly say this is not a bilateral issue between France and the UK, but it's actually an issue between the EU and the UK. Let's be honest, we've seen the rhetoric between the two countries. It's never been uh, this hot. It's never been this fraught. You know, we saw at the G7, just the latest, what, what has been dubbed the sausage fight about, you know, whether sausages can move between Bordeaux and Paris. And if it's the same as saying, talking about sausage just being moved between Northern Ireland and and uh, London. Yeah, well, I think we, we will leave it there. If you like, we'll go out on a banger, uh, so to speak. Uh, but we will be returning to the sausage war uh, later in the podcast. So, um, Lily, Reem, Annabelle, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks. A message from SQM. SQM is an environmentally conscious lithium extraction company operating globally. Through a complex combination of data tracking and monitoring, as well as input from our team of highly skilled scientists and geologists, we can measure our impact on the local environment and community. Working closely with the UN-approved Initiative for Responsible Mining Assurance, IRMA, we are confident our operations will comply with ESG standards and due diligence requirements the EU is contemplating regarding the supply chain for sustainable batteries.
Our green lithium supply will help the continent's manufacturers capture the demand created by the decarbonization of the automotive sector. Now to introduce our feature interview, I am joined by our senior policy reporter, Josh Pozaner. Hi, Josh. Hey up, Andrew. So we are going to meet Maros Shevcevic, Vice President of the European Commission, and you talked to him last week. Tell us a little bit about the encounter. Where did you meet him? Yeah, so I met him on the sidelines of the Globesec conference in his hometown of Bratislava. He's obviously been working on a number of issues I've been covering over the years. So energy disputes between Russia and Ukraine, space politics, a little bit of transport, batteries as well. But now he's really in Slovakia to bang the drum for his battery alliance project while dealing with the, the Brexit issues on the sidelines too, which we'll hear about in a moment. Right. He has a, a quite interesting portfolio at the moment. As you say, he, he is Slovakian. I think he's in, he's in his third term as a European commissioner. So he's covered a lot of ground in that time. But the current portfolio is a rather interesting mix. Do you want to tell us what he's mainly responsible for at the moment? Yeah, so he he's he seems to be actually now the commission's kind of enforcer. So he's he's responsible for inter-institutional relations and then also foresight. So his kind of job is to predict the challenges that are coming ahead, as he explains to us in the interview, and then provide, if you like, solutions or negotiating tactics for, for resolving them. That's especially pertinent for Brexit and also for the Battery Alliance, where he's been doing a lot of work to get the bloc moving forward in competition with China and the US in an, an industry that's vital for automotive producers moving forward. So this is about developing batteries, again, all part of this move away from the combustion engine, basically, right? Yeah, precisely. And also to make sure that, that we don't get left in the dirt by China and America as they tool up their own industries. Okay. So you, as you were saying in this rather interesting portfolio mix that he has, he is the point man for a lot of the Brexit issues, particularly when there are uh, differences between the UK and the EU in terms of the implementation of the uh, Brexit agreement. So he's caught up in uh, various disputes there, including one which I think even he, as vice president for foresight, may not have foreseen. Uh, and this is uh, the sausage war, so to speak, to use a tabloid uh, language. Can you just fill us in briefly on what that's all about? Yeah, so that, that's quite a thorny dispute. Now, I don't think, as you say, anybody would have expected uh, sausages and chilled meats to be the, the big cleavage and front line in, in the Brexit wars. They are now, and he's the enforcer that's really trying to solve this. And specifically, that's problem with the export of chilled meats, so sausages, but also other products as well, from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. And obviously, Mara Shevkovich is really pushing a veterinary deal uh, between the two sides, which would make things way, way easier uh, and align standards a lot closer. That's a problem, as we'll hear about in the interview with the UK side. How would a veterinary deal help solve this? So a veterinary deal would obviously align standards between the two sides, between the EU and the UK, uh, a lot more on animal welfare and animal checks and obviously alleviate these concerns about the, the transit of chilled meats between the two sides. And as we said, he, he has lived uh, various lives within the European Commission's quite different roles. Uh, one of them, uh, more in the energy side, where, where he was also involved in some pretty uh, sensitive negotiations. Uh, what particular 
case was he involved in? Yeah, he was basically the commissioner tasked with with uh, moderating the negotiations between the Russian side and the Ukrainian side in their infamous gas wars dispute. This was quite an acrimonious discussion about the transit of Russian gas through Ukraine moving forward. It became very, very political and, and was um, steeped in tension. And so we talked to him a little bit about in the interview about what are the comparisons he makes between that situation a few years ago and the Brexit discussions right now. OK, well, let's hear your conversation now with Maro Shevchevich, which, as you say, took place at the Globsec conference. Uh, it's officially a security conference, right? But it tends to roam quite wide in terms of international issues. Yeah, there was a lot of talk of batteries this time. OK, so it's yeah, they interpret that pretty broadly. Uh, let's hear that conversation now. Just switching to Brexit, is the trust broken with London and Brussels? Let's put it this way, that uh, we uh, really have to work on it. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's not easy to kind of spend uh, four years in super detailed uh, negotiations where indeed, you know, uh, every line took uh, several days, weeks and sometimes months to be negotiated. When you have uh, both uh, agreements overwhelmingly supported by the uh, respective uh, parliaments, governments, and then uh, you kind of see one breach uh, after another. I mean, that, of course... Uh, is making situation very difficult. Sometimes it's also accompanied with not uh, the friendliest of rhetorics, which of course uh, uh, is making everybody in the EU very, very, very cautious. And uh, therefore we are talking uh, a lot about the trust because I think that if you want to forge a strategic uh, partnership in this new situation with the UK, I think what we should, uh, because we are allies, we are neighbors, we've been uh, 47 years in the Union um, uh, together, so we should just respect the deals we have signed. And so the UK comes forward now, at least in the media, and talks about an extension for the chilled meat situation beyond the end of June. I just wonder, from your perspective, I mean, is this an attractive offer? The, the, the offer seems from David Frost to be, look, we need to calm the situation down, let's have more time to think about this sausage issue. I think uh, there are several things, I think, which... Uh, uh, I should mention here, I think what clearly uh, I would uh, remind uh, to David was that we had already a very intense discussion on this uh, with his predecessor, with, with Michael uh, Go in December, and I explicitly asked, how much time do you need? And, uh, and they told me, six months. And we also agreed that there will be very clear set of uh, conditions which are, which are not super difficult uh, to respect, like... Uh, Putting the label on the on the exports from the GB to the Northern Ireland for Northern Ireland only. As you put the sticker with the price, you put the sticker. This is for Northern Ireland only. And uh, then, of course, the basic uh, checks and, and and controls which we are discussing all the time. Unfortunately, none of that was respected. None of that was respected. So, uh, therefore, I would say it, it's uh, it's very difficult for us. So I. Uh, I just would like to see how this request is formulated, if it comes uh, with uh, uh, kind of assurances that, uh, guys, we promised you something, you know, in, in, in December, we are ready to do it now, but we need uh, a little bit more of a time. And the third uh, thing I think which should be also uh, very important for us is uh, where we are heading, what is the end game? And this is, uh, of course, uh, the big question mark, because... Uh, for us, it's important that the agreement, both agreements and the protocol should be fully implemented. Therefore, we signed them, you know, therefore we negotiated them. So we just uh, want to have more predictability and, and stability 
in our relationship and not to have this, I would say, perpetual discussion on product by, by product, grace period by grace period. We just want to see what is the end game. That, therefore, I'm coming back to, to my suggestion that we wanted to have some kind of roadmap where we are heading, you know, when all these commitments which are enshrined in the protocol will be, will be fulfilled. And I hope we will, we will get it from the, from the UK. And in terms of the, of the recent signature of the UK-Australia trade agreement, how much does this concern you? Because this could also slightly change the issue of enforcement along the GB Northern Ireland border. I think that the major concerns with Australian deals are actually with the Northern uh, Irish farmers, not with us, uh, because I think we have a deal... And uh, uh, if uh, the proper checks are uh, performed or uh, coming back uh, to my proposal of uh, a veterinary agreement is signed, uh, we would be fine. And, and I'm uh, repeating that it shouldn't be, uh, I would say, uh, so, so difficult uh, for the UK because uh, our standards are largely aligned right now. Mm. And uh, this would be the solution which would remove 80% of the, of, the, of the checks. It would solve the problems, I would say, immediately. It would give us some kind of bridging perspective for, you know, putting the infrastructure in place to hire and, and trade people, to give us finally <laughs> access to the IT systems, uh, the customs database, so we can see what actually is being, being checked and uh, to put everything in, in, in order. So this, this offer still stands. Uh, we even suggested let's do it on a temporary basis. I mean, for one year, two years. I mean, if you have some kind of big deal which would change the standards as, you, as, you, uh, as we agreed them together and it would be the uh, part of the EU, fine with us. Then we go for the, for the checks and controls. But at that time, hopefully, we'll have the infrastructure up and ready. And, and so if, if such a veterinary deal would be so helpful, why can't it happen? Is it just British domestic politics? I mean, that's really a good question, which I'm asking myself, because yesterday I, I concluded uh, the round of discussions with all political uh, leaders uh, uh, in Northern Ireland. And I can say that all political leaders uh, have been very supportive of uh, the veterinary agreement. Uh, and uh, therefore, I think that this is uh, something which I think should be really uh, resolved in, in London. And uh, this is what I was uh, also uh, proposing to Northern uh, uh, Irish uh, uh, partners, uh, uh, that if we can find the solution here, it could really solve uh, most of the problems which I know are quite sensitive in Northern Ireland. Yeah, uh, and so I thought it's just interesting to give some context in your, your history, uh, maybe because you have family in the UK, right, living in the UK. I, had, uh, I, had, I had my daughter, she was, ah, okay. uh, she was studying and working there, you know, she's back here, and, but she spent there, like, at least what she says, the best uh, years of her very young life, because she's 28, but she did uh, two universities there, and she was also working for one bank, and, uh, and then after that she got uh, uh, the better opportunity here. So I was quite, uh, quite frequent guests in the UK, and when I was working in my national capacity, and I was uh, ambassador to the EU, so we always been seated next to the UK. So uh, this is where I, where, uh, I know the David Frost from, from our diplomatic lives. And, of course, uh, we've been 
working with the, with the UK government during the enlargement times. I mean, and, and I know that uh, we've been very strongly and we still are as a central Eastern Europeans in transatlantic camp. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of uh, uh, personal and professional links. And, and so how do you find personally this Sausage King moniker <laughs> that your friend Michael Gove created for you and is now in the UK presses? That's how you're known there. Well, I think it's fair to say that uh, when it comes to making sure that sausages can move across the Irish Sea, that this is a win for the people of Northern Ireland, a win for our supermarkets, but above all, it's a win for Maros Shevkovic. Uh, he is the, uh, the sausage king um, of this deal. Yeah, 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 I mean, I was, uh, uh, I mean, a bit, uh, a bit amused. And I, and I think it just underlined the fact how the UK side was happy about that uh, solution. And uh, so, I mean, it's... Uh, Michael's uh, sense of uh, sense of humor, and uh, and therefore as a sausage king, I definitely do not want the sausage war, if I can say it this way. But <laughs> so I'm ready to do everything to prevent it. But I think David would have to help me with that. And in that context, the sausage king must have a favorite sausage. <laughs> what is yours? I mean, it's I'm, I'm I'm sorry to say, but it's a Slovak one. It's called Nitran from the town of my wife. But <laughs> so I'm not big expert in in uh, in uh, in British sausage, I'm afraid. So. Okay, I'll, I'll try to check that that one out. <laughs> and, and just also, you know, you we we've spoken many times over the years because you've worked on Russia Ukraine gas deals, batteries, space, everything. Can you draw any parallels between trying to negotiate with the Russians and the Ukrainians over gas supply, which was a very, very political, very sensitive issue, and the realities of doing the same with Brexit now? I think the, the, the parallel to draw is that uh, both of these, uh, these issues are very complicated. Another parallel is that we are um, talking about the very, very sensitive issues, which has very strong domestic policy element. I definitely think that the, the level of tension uh, between EU and the UK is uh, incomparably lower uh, than it was in the room uh, where I was uh, moderating uh, the discussions between Ukraine and Russia. Another parallel was that we always went to the cleavage, uh, 30th of December, 31st of December, and that it took us uh, four years uh, to kind of have these very tough negotiations uh, very often very emotionally charged on a year-by-year basis until I finally managed to, to convince my, my, my partners that now it's time uh, to have something more long-term. Uh, uh, I think that that's some, some lessons uh, for me uh, there are that uh, even if we would be now kind of trying to get over this bit-by-bit uh, solutions, what we need, and therefore I'm coming back to my end game. We need uh, to find, you know, the lasting solutions uh, for all this because I think, and I'm absolutely convinced of that, uh, that uh, the, both the citizens uh, in the EU and the UK want us to be friends, want us to be a good partners. I mean, the business community wants to do business, so let's let's do that. Let's solve these problems and remove the that that irritants uh, which are there on the both sides. But as I said, I, I hope that this strategic uh, uh, approach will, will prevail over some of the, I would say, issues which I understand are, uh, from the point of view of domestic policy, is very charged. And a final question for you. 
just on, on your job title, you're basically the longest serving member of the college, right? I think, yeah, we are, we are, we are, we are competing with uh, uh, Johannes Hane. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you have had a lot of job titles over the years. Yes. And, and now a lot of focus goes on this issue of foresight in your title. Can you just tell us, A, whose idea was that? Was that yours or was that Mrs. von der Leyen's? And B, what exactly does it mean? Yeah, I, I have to say that... Uh, uh, my boss Ursula von der Leyen has a good foresight to introduce foresight in the in the in the commission, and I think that it comes uh, from her experience uh, as a as a defense minister that we need uh, much better anticipatory governance, that we we have to be much more strategic in not only to kind of do the better horizon scanning and or trying to peek uh, around the, the corner, but to be also able to channel the, the famous writings on the wall to the political level. Because, I mean, we had a lot of uh, analysis uh, predicting there will be financial meltdown or we would have a migration crisis or, I mean, uh, the, the YouTubes about uh, Bill Gates and others about uh, uh, the age of pandemia been, been uh, I would say, uh, on, on the Internet for quite some years. But what was missing was uh, the, the foresight... Uh, uh, hasn't become yet at that time strategic, meaning politically relevant, channel to the top political levels and kind of uh, being uh, the, the source of the policy making and decision taking. And this is what I'm now putting together. As you know, we now created uh, the network of uh, uh, 27 EU ministers for future because I saw that uh, every member state is now looking for the best way how to use this new modern technique of governing. And this is something where we need to look for the complementarities. We have, as you know, in the EU plans for 2030, we want to be climate neutral by 2050. But how it kind of uh, translates into the national uh, policies, uh, what we should do to be simply better prepared for all the developments, what the mega trends are telling us, and what the foresight community is signaling uh, might be the next uh, big thing. And... Uh, the major challenge there is that uh, we have lots of brain power in Europe, lots of excellent analysis and brilliant thinking how to filter out what is politically relevant, what is important uh, for the for the top levels and, and that's I think the hardest part of, of my job to kind of to bring things which are relevant for the uh, policymaking in Europe. Thanks to Josh for bringing us that conversation from Bratislava. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Thanks to everyone for the birthday wishes last week. We hope you'll take a moment to leave us a rating or review, preferably a nice one. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe or follow us on whatever app you use so you never miss an episode. And you can always send us feedback and ideas for guests or topics. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. Until next week, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.